This is Metal Mike, and this is the best of the 80s glam metal cast. Well, we all know 2020 turned out to be a real crappy year for the most part, but it was a busy year on my podcast. I talked to so many cool rockers, a lot of heroes of mine. These were all people I idolized as a kid. I got to chat with them. So definitely an experience I'll never forget. And of course, many thanks to everybody who participated. Let's start off in January of 2020. The year, hey, was starting off with a lot of promise. A lot of artists had different things that they were planning to do. I would always start off those first interviews of the year with this. So what do you have planned for uh, 2020? One of my interviews from January was with Johnny D from Britney Fox. Now, I love Britney Fox, and a few of the members just flat out refused to talk to me. I was really glad I got to talk to Johnny, though. He's a very cool guy. And let me give you this podcasting tips. I'll give you some tips and little tidbits about the podcast all the way through. If you're ever going to do this stuff, get to know your time zones. So Johnny was in Germany. I'm, I'm in the United States. I think I woke up about 7.30 in the morning, made some coffee, and we did the interview 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And this one was picked up by my good friends uh, at Sleaze Rocks. Uh, they carried a lot of my stories throughout the year. Uh, I asked Johnny what happened to some of his past bandmates. And here's what he said. A lot of your bandmates, past bandmates, they're just incognito. Um, where are some of these guys? Do you know? Where, where, where is Dizzy Dean? Is he done? Um, well, if you talk to him, he's not done. But, you know, uh, for me, you know, uh, you're only as, as present as your, your last record or whatever. I mean, the guy hasn't done anything as far as uh, touring or anything. So nobody really knows what he's doing. Um, probably wouldn't say that he's done with music. I'm sure he's still writing and he's been writing songs for, you know, since the entire time that he left Britney Fox, but nobody's ever heard them. So to me, what's the point? Um, but yeah, Dean's hiding out somewhere. I don't know why, but he shut down all of his social media and, uh, not really ever a, per a people person. So, you know, social media to him probably wasn't very comfortable because you get, you know, critique back in like a few seconds and uh, some people don't like to be critiqued, you know. Yeah. Other people feed off of it or they take it or they just blow it off completely. But, you know, you got to be open for that. I mean, there's, that's just the way it is. In February, I got to talk with Kevin Steele from Rocks Gang. I thought Rocks Gang would be a great fit for the podcast. Also, I thought it'd be cool to kind of hear the backstory and kind of what he's up to today if he'd ever do anything, you know, under the Rocks Gang name again. One cool little tidbit we'll throw in before we get into Rocks Gang is there is a podcast chart, okay? So there's charts. It's called Chartable. And it's four podcasts, especially ones that are on Apple Music. One cool thing that I was noticed that would happen throughout the year is that I would chart on different charts in different countries. I'll be completely honest, never charted very high in the United States or Canada. But there were times where I'd hit the very, very top or top 10 of charts in, in countries like Singapore, Finland, Norway, South Korea. And it's just crazy because here I am, just this guy doing a podcast, you know, talking about music and people all over the world have heard it. And uh, it, it's, it is pretty crazy thought. Well, let's go back to Kevin Steele. I think 
uh, anytime when you're doing an interview with somebody, it's almost like a pitch, right? You're throwing out the pitch. There's certain questions. It's not that you're trying to get somebody to say something crazy or, or, or make themselves look bad, but but you throw the pitch and either they're going to bunt it, you know, strike out or uh, hit it out in a home run and left field or something like that. And, and that's kind of what happened with this one. It was It was getting to be a pretty long interview and we're getting toward the end. And I just ask him, I mean, would you ever do Rock's Gang again? And I'm only expecting this, him to say yeah or no, you know. And and Kevin just pretty much goes on a, on a tirade um, about, you know, like aging rockers and how it's it's not a really good look for somebody who's in their 70s uh, trying to pretend that they're still in their 20s. So let's roll that clip. Like I said, didn't see this one coming. I don't want to. This is the way I look at it. I grew up idolized guys like Steven Tyler, right? Alice Cooper. A lot of these guys. It's very hard to age gracefully in rock and roll, especially as a singer. Guitar players got that whole gypsy, gunslinger, pirate look going. It looks good into their, you know, Keith looked great till he was, you know, till just recently. Joe Perry still looks way, Joe Perry looks way cooler than Steve. You know, I look at Stephen Tyler now and I'm like, dude, it's, it's, a, it's great that you can still move out like that. And it's great that you still are fit enough to wear clothes like that. But, but you're 70 something. You don't, shouldn't be wearing clothes like that. And your songs, their songs are still aimed at prepubescent girls. And to me, I'm not saying, look, Aerosmith fans will party to you. Who the fuck am I to say anything? I'm just saying for me personally, it's creepy. Right. <laughs> the no, 70 year old grandpa is singing songs to teenage girls. At least the Stones. And 80s fans, this is something you touched on earlier, they're like unforgiving, man, and they're un, they are like stuck. They want me to be Kevin Steele of Rockstone, right? A lot of them. And, um, you know, that was a different, I was a different person. I was in my mid to late 20s when I started with the first album, not when I started, but by the time I got an album out. And, um, And I was singing songs like, you know, Scratch My Back and Too Cool for School and I Need Your Sex. And, and like, I don't want, I'm a middle-aged man now. <laughs> you right, know? right, yeah. I, know I would feel ridiculous, I would feel ridiculous dressing up like I used to dress up. I would feel ridiculous singing a song like I Need Your Sex or or too cool for school. <laughs> too cool for school, dude. I've been <laughs> out of school for a while. <laughs> and like, there's, there's, I look around at my peers, a lot of guys from the 80s, and they're still fucking, you know, Stephen Piercy or somebody is still trying to be 80s Stephen Piercy, you know? And some of these guys that are still, they're still doing that 80s thing, and to me it's just, I'm sorry. To, to me personally, I just find it kind of sad. Now, one of my biggest interviews came in March, and it was with Joe Lynn Turner. 
this was one where I kept knocking at the door. I kept asking his management for an interview. Kind of got the runaround. I think eventually they thought, you know, this guy's pretty persistent. You know, let me see what the questions are. So I had to send the questions. So a lot of back and forth, a lot of roadblocks. And I think my thought was going to be, okay, so, you know, the management... And what's that? To their credit, they, they don't want to set him up and put him in some kind of bad situation. They're, they're doing their homework. Uh, but you wonder, okay, so if the manager is kind of a pain in the neck, is the artist going to be a pain in the neck? And and I was kind of, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be like talking with Joe because he's a pretty famous artist. And let me tell you, it, it, he was not like that at all. Probably one of the coolest people I ever talked to. He kept calling me Mike. Like we were best friends. Like we knew each other forever. And when somebody does that, it does. It, it just makes you feel good. Like they actually took the time to know what your name is. I mean, there's been people that didn't say my name. Not that that's rude or anything. But like you tell, he he was definitely like a very um, down to earth. I know that's a rainbow reference, right? But he's a very down to earth guy. Very cool guy. Now, this was my biggest interview that I ever have done. On YouTube, I think it had about 8,000 views, which for me is like incredible. And I think Blabbermouth carried this about two times and Brave Words carried it and Sleaze Rock carried it. All, all my sites that I submit to carried it. I think once you have a big interview like that, you know, you think that they're all, oh, this is it, man. 8,000 is here. The next one's going to be nine. The next one's going to be 10. Uh, it didn't happen that way, but that's cool. A lot of times it is the artist and it is what they say. And what Joe said, I mean, man, a lot of revealing stuff about uh, what he thought about Richie Blackmore, what he thought about Yngwie Malmsteen. The Ing I'll play the clip that always gets me. Um, he basically talks about how Odyssey era was going to be more like a band. Eric Singer was going to be in the band. And I thought that was mind boggling for me being a Kiss fan. So let me roll that clip. I thought that was very interesting. And also, you should have been, you should have been there when Yngwie was screaming that he had to be on the cover, screaming that it had to be Elijah, and it's screaming because originally we were supposed to have Bob Daisley on bass and Eric Singer on drums. No way. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm giving you some inside shit here. Whoa. I did this not know exactly that. exactly what was happening. Oh, yeah. We had meetings with these guys. In fact, I believe Bob played on a track or two. But then they grabbed the bass and took over and started playing bass. But uh, and there's no better bass player than Bob Paisley. No. Or writer for that matter. Or writer because Bob wrote all those great Aussie songs. That was Bob from Crazy Train to Mr. Crowley and Over the Mountain and you name it. That was Bob Paisley. <clears throat> and and in Rainbow too, he was just amazing. So this was what it was supposed to be: singer on drums, Daisley, me, and Jens Johansson on the keyboards. And they freaked out and was felt like he was losing control instead of gaining a band and gaining a, a award-winning, I don't want to call it a super group because, you know, I hate that term, but we were all notable people. And he just turned it down and screamed and yelled and kicked uh, until they gave in. So in April, I got to talk with Tony Harnell and man, if anybody follows me on Twitter, you guys know I'm a huge TNT fan. I think this one I scored through Twitter, and I think I must have 
tagged him or commented on something and say, hey, you should come on my podcast. And and uh, being a good sport, Tony finally gave in and he did do it. But I, I had to knock on that door a few times too. People always ask me, like, how do you get a hold of these people? Well, it's not that hard. I mean, anybody could do it. They all have social media. They all have contact us on their websites, things like that. So, you know, what you do is uh, one comment I always use here in the house that gets people laughing is you have to sh- polish the turd, right? So what you have to do is you have to really build yourself up. You do a write-up about yourself, uh, your accomplishments, who your audience is. For me, as time has gone on, obviously you can mention, hey, I talked to so-and-so, and and this site always carries my stories, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, The biggest bargaining chip for me is the Twitter account. Now, the Twitter account has 14.5 thousand followers, which you know, is decent for just a regular person to have that kind of, you know, that amount of followers. Now, one thing, does that equate to views? No, it's very hard to get the 14,000 people uh, that are followers to actually click on videos over on YouTube. You know what? Hey, it's not a bad thing to have and and it's good promotions. But here's my clip talking with Tony. In my head was, was the production was the producer because I feel like, and I don't want to come across as cheesy when I say this, but I feel like there's some kind of like magical sounds on there, at least that I hear. There's a lot of little synth accents and just little things that like give it like this, you know, magical sound. Do you agree with that or am I crazy? I'm probably crazy. (laughs) No, no, I think you're, I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think the producer was um, very much into uh, what Mutt Lang was doing at the time with Def Leppard. And I think that he, um, I remember his, he, he, had a, he had a beautiful studio over there that where we did the first three albums, and he kept upgrading it all the time. And one of the things he bought before that before that album was a um, digital tape machine. And so Intuition is one of the first hard rock albums that was done on digital tape. Mm-hmm. Hysteria was possibly the first or one of the first, very first. But Intuition was right in there as one of the early ones that was done on digital tape. Um and uh, and the producer just really had fun with that. And also the drums on Intuition are programmed, like Def Leppard did. Okay. So they aren't actually live played drums. They're, they're programmed drums. And, uh, and, and, of course, we brought in Joe Lynn Turner to sing backing vocals yeah. with me, which was a really fun, fun, fun experience. We were um, both in the studio at the same time with two microphones facing each other and we became really good friends. We, we actually flew over there together to do the backing vocals. The lead vocals were already done. The album was done. Um, so the whole thing just had, it did have sort of a, a bit of a magic um, surrounding it. I would, I would agree. Now in May, uh, man, I had a lot of cool interviews in May, and, and I don't want to shortchange anybody, but the one I had to go with, another one I've been a big fan of for a long time, is Mike Vissera. Mike Vissera, obviously, was the replacement singer in Loudness. He was in Ingve Malmsteen. He's done tons of different projects and sang on different things. And I just always really liked his voice and, and liked the kind of you know music that he puts out. So for a while, I was sending emails, sending emails, and I wasn't getting anything back. But what happened, he did. He had some stuff going on in, in his personal life, and he wasn't checking out the email very much or doing any of that. So finally, we did connect. This was picked up by my friends uh, at Brave Words and Sleaze Rocks. You'll hear me mention them a lot. They have been such great supporters of, of the podcast. And even with those, you know, just if you wonder how do you get on those websites, it's it's easy, but it's hard, right? First, you got to have good content that they would actually want to put on there. 
And secondly, you know, believe it or not, I have to transcribe each interview. So basically what I do is I've got to, you know, listen to the podcast after it's recorded and edited and I have to transcribe it and write out all the key parts and then I forward it off to the emails of these sites. So once again, all these sites have a uh, contact us or send us the news stories. And, you know, that's a way to do it with them. I'll play the clip that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, we hear this all the time, but it sounds as though that uh, Loudness's management uh, was not handling their money properly. And they, uh, around the Soldier of Fortune album, that the money was not being handled properly. And they had to do this kind of cover album, ultimately ended up being on the prowl. So pretty interesting point of view. Once again, maybe you guys were in the same boat as me. I liked people like Mike Vissera and Loudness and Ingve Malmsteen and Man of War and all this stuff. And you just didn't see a ton of it in the magazines. You always read about Poison. You always read about Warrant. You always read about Kiss. But you didn't hear about some of these other bands that much. So the reason why I was doing the podcast was to try to get some of these questions that I had, you know, wanted to get answers on. Definitely another cool thing uh, that came out of the podcast. But here's Mike Vissera. So the thought, I'm assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the thought was to break this band big in the U.S., right? And the thing that kind of strikes right. me weird is there's only one single... And it really wasn't the most commercial song on the album, not even close. And there was no real American tour. So what happened there? Why why weren't there more singles and why wasn't there a tour in the U.S.? Oh, you know, we we, we were supposed to tour. And um, we had all that. Uh, it's just more, more uh, political stuff. <laughs> the management had been abusing their power for, for quite some time and we found found out that we were broke after soldier um there, you know it's just the management had been you know overseeing all the finances and there was just no money to do anything and it all almost ended and luckily we were with uh warner pioneer at the time it was called it was warner records and pioneer records and they decided that we would um they would let us do another record. They would fund it, and we would just release it in Japan, you know, and then recoup, you know. Then the funds would be flowing, and then we could do another record for the world. But what happened was, uh, as we were doing that record, the label decided they really liked it, and they wanted to release it for the world. So that's why On the Prowl is a little odd, because it originally wasn't supposed to be for the world. It was only for Japan, for that territory, and anything in Japan we would release would be gold and platinum within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's what happened, you know, it just, uh, again, just, uh, man, you know, management, you know, mishandling our funds and, and, uh, there just wasn't any money. In June, I talked with Steve Blaze from Lillian Axe. This was the second interview. We did one earlier in the year and we didn't get to finish. So we did a part two. Now, I'm a Lillian Axe freak. I love Lillian Axe. I, I think they're one of the finest bands to come out of the late 80s. It was just it was just great talk with Steve. He's a super cool guy. I know I could always call him and he would always help me out with anything I was working on. It. And that means a lot. When you do this, you know, just to give you the process, I mean, you do. You hate to be a pest, but you do have to stone people. You have to send, you know, emails, emails. Uh, it's like sales. Anybody out there do sales? Uh, they always say you got to ask like 10 people to get, you know, a couple sales. And that's kind of how it is with interview requests. You kind of send them out and people bite or they don't. 
Uh, once you score the interview, you got to write the questions. You got to come in with some kind of script because you don't want to get on the phone and get starstruck and, and, and be you know fumbling around with your words and wasting people's time. You want to have good questions, uh, you know, just honest questions, things that you want to know the answer to. You record it, you edit it, and yes. There's a lot of editing that has to be done. No offense to anybody that I talk to, but there's dead space, there's ums, there's this, there's that. You want to clean it because the listener, let's face it, today's a person's attention span. I don't like to really go past a half an hour because I know that the attention span of people is very short. And if uh, something, one little thing could set them off, so you've got to clean it up. Then you got to promote it. I go crazy with, uh, with I put it on Twitter, I put it on Instagram. I've probably joined a hundred different Facebook groups and I just dump, dump, dump the interviews in these Facebook groups. And let me tell you, the stuff works. You can see it. If you go uh, if you go into the analytics on YouTube, you can see where these things come from. Uh, I even started posting things on the KISS FAQ board. They've got a couple different sections where you can post things, and I get a lot of feedback out of that. So that's that's what you got to do. And then obviously I told you, you got to transcribe it, and you've got to send it out to the websites. So I think this one was uh, picked up by Sleaze Rocks. Steve kind of brought up the point about what's going on with some of the past members. And if there's a little bit of a rift between some of the original guys. So here it is. As far as uh, band members go and that kind of thing, I think it would be great. I mean, I, look, look, I've tried that before in the past. Mm-hmm. When we did the one night in the temple, the double live acoustic show, the private show that we did uh, where we filmed the documentary, um, I invited Johnny Vines to come. Johnny Vines came down and he... Uh, and he sang two songs with us. He was the original singer before we got signed. Mm-hmm. He got on stage and did a couple of songs with us. I did invite Ron to come in for that. He declined. Okay. I invited Ron and Darren to come when we got inducted into the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame. Uh, I invited them to come down and and get an award because they were just as everybody that was in the band uh, deserved a part of that uh, um, that special award of being inducted into the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. They declined on coming down for that too. Even mm-hmm. they were they were going to get, you know, plaques with their name on it. You know, so I mean, I I, I can't control people. I, everything's open. Anybody that's ever been a part of this band, from a road crew member to a publicist to a band member, is a part of of the band's legacy. That's the way I look at it, and they're always welcome. Nice. But I will not go around begging people, and I will not, you know, I will not be held back by anything like that. I will never look. I could have if I needed to replace everybody in the band, I would be completely upset. You know, I'd be <laughs> very bummed out about it. But I wouldn't lay over and, and give it up. I'm not ever going to do that. No, you shouldn't. Well, July. Um... One person that I got to talk to that I was a real big fan of, always been a fan of Angel, and Punky is a riot, man. He's got a lot of energy. He's definitely a fast talker. And, of course, he had a lot to talk about with Kiss. That's That was great. I mean, that was the stuff I wanted to hear about. I wanted to hear about Angel, but I wanted to hear about the ties to Kiss. And in this clip, we'll play a little bit of it. This is when Punky kind of gets the offer from Gene Simmons to join Kiss. Hear how that all went down. So I gave my number, and Gene calls me, and he goes, hey, this is Gene, um, I'd like you to come down and, and, and sit in with us, and, and because, you know, they're looking for guitar players, they just learned five songs off the Kiss Alive album, it doesn't matter, you know, what songs, any five songs, just learn five songs, I said, okay, I'll check it out, so I went down to SIR where they were, where they were rehearsing, and I walked in, they were playing Communication Breakdown, I lived that one, there was yes. a car was on the drums, and I walked in, plugged up, we played, and it went great, they loved it, it was, it sounded great, everybody was happy, and so Gene says, well, let's talk business. Come on over here. 
And so we sat on the job manager and he said, listen, um, you know, you've got the gig, let's talk some business. And, um, and, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I said, well, Gene, I'm, I'm with Greg right now, we're shopping a deal, you know. Um, so I, you know, I have to talk to Greg about it. And so when I, as soon as I said that, Gene got insulted, I guess. I don't know what. He just got up and he said, come on, Paul, let's go. And they left, they stormed off. And so I was, I was sat there. And, and the rehearsal space with Eric Clark for that hour, and we talked and stuff. And then I went back home, and Barry Levine calls me up. And he goes, Tucky, what'd you do? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, Gene and Paul came back to the city with their jaws to the floor, and Gene said, no one has ever turned down Kiss. <laughs> and I said, what? I said, I said, I didn't turn them down. I just didn't say yes right away because I was, you know, I had I had to talk to Greg about it. He goes, well, they just said, you know, they, and he said they were prepared to offer you 200,000 a year plus points. And at the time, I was broke. <laughs> you know, but, um, but I said, well... Uh, August. I felt like I finally arrived. I got to talk with Bruce Kulik. Now, this is this was the Kiss guitarist that I grew up. Asylum was the first album that I ever bought. This was just like amazing that I scored this interview and got to talk with Bruce. One thing that happens... Now, let me tell you this before we get into Bruce's clip. Interviews fall through. Uh, I'm sure as you could probably gather. Some get rescheduled and some don't. Uh, the day before I was supposed to interview Bruce, now this was supposed to happen in May, uh, he had messaged me that he had to reschedule, and then it was, I think it was the next day, uh, his brother passed away, which was horrible. I didn't buy, I gave him a space, and I know that he needed that, and then eventually we got back together and did the interview. I had an interview scheduled with Dee Snyder that fell through because there was a bunch of stuff that was going on with his daughter when she was stuck in Peru, and that the interview kind of fell through. Here's the craziest one. Now, I had tasked my wife to try to help me get some interviews. You know, she kind of wasn't having a lot of luck, and finally she scored one with Tom Kiefer. So everything was all set. I was even set to take the day off from work, so I was all set to, to talk with Tom. And this was right when the tour was, was being announced. The big tour that he was going to do with, you know, with Rat and Skid Row and all those guys, the big, the big summer tour they were going to do was basically the, uh, the answer to the Motley Crue tour that was going on. I can remember it plain as day. I, I went over to the grocery store that's across from where I work, and um, I grabbed some Hot Pockets. And I was getting ready to walk out, and I, I get this call. It's kind of like a weird call, you know, weird number. And I usually don't pick up calls, but for some reason I picked it up. And it's Tom Kiefer. So here I am in the grocery store talking with Tom Kiefer uh, with the thing of Hot Pockets in my hand. And he's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm ready to do the interview. And I'm like, oh. I said, well, you know, all my records state that it's tomorrow. The interview's tomorrow. And I guess what happened, ultimately I was right. The timing was right, and his publicist kind of got the dates mixed up. And he kind of... Said, hey, no worries, man. We'll we'll talk. Uh, we'll talk tomorrow or something like that. The like, you know, the way we're supposed to. And I'm telling you, this you want to just kick it up one notch, you can get crazier. Is that the next day was kind of like March 15th or somewhere in there? The, you know, the mid March when everything started to shut down and everything started going crazy with COVID. And obviously, the fate of that tour was you know not looking good. And then the publicist got back to me and said, oh, he's not doing any more interviews. Um, he doesn't really want to deal with this COVID thing. There's too much stuff in the air. So we're just done with interviews. So here it was. I had Tom Kiefer. Can you imagine the cool stuff? I could have talked to Tom Kiefer in the grocery store, but I just obviously wasn't going to work. Uh, and then the COVID thing happened. So that was a double whammy, of uh, a scheduling mistake, and then COVID. So I never did get to speak with Tom Kiefer. But hey, I did get to speak with Bruce Kulik. Listen to the clip. I will admit that there are a lot of big, big supporters of Alive 3 because that version of the band with Eric Singer and myself, um, like the MTV Unplugged, that had a real special uh, 
chemistry between us um, and, and playing quality, um, it does mean a lot to them. I will also add that I do think that a lot of three is probably the most uh, actually organic ver- uh, one of the three records. You know? <laughs> of course, I wasn't there for one and two, but I heard stories yep. about a lot of you know things being redone. And I'm not going to in any way represent that a live three was was um, you know a, a, a virgin recording from the tapes and that's it and, and things weren't done. The oddest part of a live three is the fact that we do this amazing soundtrack version of "I Was Made for Loving You," but never played it in front of a crowd. I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah, you won't find it on the set list. So, but we knew the song would be important, right? And it doesn't sound any different than anything else on the record, does it? No. You get what I mean? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I really think it was it was uh, a great, uh, you know, celebration of the Revenge Tour but, yeah. and where the band was at. And um, I remember I was a little hurt when I know there was a couple of comments from Gene and Paul uh, acknowledging w- what you started out with as the question. How could a live three be... Uh, how could it even compete with those other ones? You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I feel, for fans of my era and the, and the non-makeup years, I feel it, it does. September, got to talk with Chris Caffrey from Sabotage. I'm huge into Sabotage. Love them. And this was another one where, you know, sometimes there are times where the artists will say, I can't talk about this and I can't talk about that. And he couldn't talk about TSO because that was another thing. They didn't know what they were going to do when it became, you know, this time of year for the holidays. And honestly, I was totally fine with it because I really only wanted to talk about Sabotage anyways. Here's the clip with Chris. When Sabotage was, was, took a break or was done, I mean, John did Taj Mahal. You know, you did Faces. I had Iraq Attack with John. Then there was uh, Circle to Circle with Watching in Silence, and you wrote and John wrote, and I think you played on some of that. And I got to admit, man, as a fan, I mean, I get it. You guys want to do solo stuff, but in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, my God, why couldn't this just been combined and been a Sabotage album? Yeah, you know what? I don't have uh, – that's the one question I could never answer because I'm here to do a Sabotage record at the time anybody would ever want me to. So as far as that goes, that's another one of those questions that I don't answer. <laughs> like I, I would love to do a sabotage record tomorrow, and there's you know reasons, different reasons why things have never timed itself out to to happen again. I, I think the world misses sabotage. I know I do. I do. And um, you know we're all here. Obviously, we would never be able to um, completely recreate the magic that happened with Chris and Paul and John. I mean, that's two thirds of of the largest part of many of this writing combo of Sabotage are, are you know, our angels of ours now. So, you know, we, we'd be able to, we'd be able to write Sabotage records, but I don't think it would ever be exactly the same. I mean, even John digs out some of his old recordings that his brother had written that he hasn't used. I think there's, there's a part of that that I think maybe, you know, maybe John and, um, you know, even the, the, the ghosts of sabotage kind of want to maybe let that rest mm-hmm. you know, away from from that, just because there's such a huge important part of that 
whole entire chemistry of that band that's not there. You know. Now in October, uh, sadly, Eddie Van Halen passed away. Now a lot of people were doing all kinds of posts, all kinds of podcasts, uh, and I kind of stayed out of it. I didn't want to look like I was trying to jump on the bandwagon. I got a message from Greg um, Renoff, who does the um, uh, Van Halen Rising and the Ted Templeton books, and he's like, "Man, you should." You should talk to some of these guys that you've talked to and, and do a Van Halen podcast because they've got a lot of these guys saw Eddie when he was just coming up out in California and it's, it would be really cool. So I was like, hey, man, if Greg says to do it, that, that, it must make sense to do it. Uh, I asked eight different individuals to do it and they all said yes. And then we just compiled all those interviews uh, into one. Also got a, a local newscaster in my area, um, Jason Paulus, to to join me, which was a cool opportunity for us to kind of do something together. Now that one got picked up by Blabbermouth a couple times, uh, Sleaze Rocks, Brave Words, all the sites carried it. And it, the funny thing was is that the, I'll, uh, I'll put on the screen the one for Key Marcello. They basically, uh, Key made a cool point, and I'll play that clip, but that, that Eddie kind of brought keyboards out into heavy metal and of course i think the way it was kind of skewed is to make try to make key look bad and don't do that man because key's a super cool guy i like key so much he's very cool but um yeah i think there was basically a a bash fest in the comments because people were trying to say oh haven't you ever heard of deep purple or heard of this one yeah we get it you know keyboards existed in rainbow and do and deep purple yeah i get it but i think what the point key was trying to make is something that was more prominent you know, in the 80s hard rock side when it comes to think about, um, he was trying to say Europe, you know, would the final countdown have existed without jump? That was the point he was trying to make uh, and he made it and he was right. You know, when he uh, introduced keyboards into into metal, which was almost not allowed at the time. I remember I saw Masters of Rock at the Raw Sunday in Stockholm. It was uh, Van Halen, ACDC and Motley Crue and uh uh, when they played Jump from 1984, Eddie played the synth solo. Well, he actually made a choice to play the synth solo, not the guitar solo. And the people were actually booing. Mm. That's how sensitive keyboards were in hard rock back in the days. And it totally changed that too. Now, it's really hard to imagine, you know, hard rock bands of that style without keyboards. Especially, uh, especially yeah. Europe. You know, when I think of keyboards in, uh, in hard rock heavy metal, I mean, look no further than the final countdown, you know? Exactly. I, I would go as far as to say that without jump, there wouldn't have been a final countdown. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, people didn't experiment with keyboards that way. I mean, <laughs> Actually, when people use keyboard, they used to hide the keyboard player behind the blanket on stage <laughs> sometimes. I don't even know if you remember those times. It was crazy. It was like if you were using keyboard, you had to be, you had to be ashamed of it some way. But he totally changed that. Um, definitely. And then I got to talk with my good friend, Bob Nash, and we did a Kiss interview. Now, this one was just us blowing off steam man we were talking about what you know what we would do if we were given the the keys to the kiss kingdom and then we talked about um you know what if this happened what if that happened what if vinnie vincent was around for the animalize album all different stuff like that and i don't know what it was but i'm telling you people loved that one that was one of the bigger interviews it got a lot of views but you know i was definitely glad to do the tribute for uh eddie van halen and um and like i said we had a lot of fun with that one episode with bob now in November, hey, you know, when that kiss thing kind of seemed to work out pretty well, uh, I decided, hey, 
Let's do one on Motley Crue. And you want to talk about time zones. You got to know your time zones when you're talking with somebody in uh, Australia because I think they're on the different a different day than you. So you want to talk about something pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy. I talked with Paul Miles. Now, Paul Miles, he is the guy, man. He is like the crew. He does the chronological crew. He knows everything about crew. He was been tasked to write John Karabi's story with John Karabi. And that was exclusive info that came out on the podcast. I was so glad that we were able to be the first one to put that story out there. Um, and that got picked up by a lot of different um, sites. One thing I've never revealed, why I started the podcast or what brought me to start the podcast. And it was another podcast. And this is kind of goofy. This is me kind of being uh, goofy and cocky. But uh, I was listening to The Metal Voice. And it was a really cool interview. And I happened to look and to see how many followers Metal Voice had. This was just on Twitter. And for some reason, I was comparing. I was like, whoa, I got more followers than these guys. Why don't I do a podcast? And it was just something that goofy where I thought, oh, I could do one too. Now, in Metal Voice's defense, I think if you go to like their, their uh, Facebook and their website, they've got tons and tons and tons of followers, probably way more than I do in likes, all that kind of stuff. So, But that's just where I got the idea. They were the springboard for the 80s glam metal cast. So thank you, Metal Voice. Here's a clip. You got to check out Paul's. He's got an Australian accent. You got to hear this. It sounds great. So ultimately, John gets the gig, and they make an incredible album. This is an uphill climb, though, as we see, because basically you've, you've lost a key member, and you have a new musical style that's kind of out there. So talk about that a little bit. What, what are your thoughts about the Motley Crue uh, 94 album? Well, to me, I, it's, it's absolutely one of my favorite albums of the band. Um, and look, I should probably tell you at this point that I've actually, over the last I don't know, year and a half, two years. I've actually been working with uh, with John Karabi in helping him to bring his uh, his life story uh, to fruition. So I'm currently at the point where uh, Crab and I have uh, we finished the manuscript. Uh, we've we've got his story down, and and, we're, and the attention with our managers is now turning to to publishing to get it out. Uh, awesome. as soon as we can for fans to enjoy next year. But it, it's, it's an amazing story. He goes into, you know, all the details, uh, about his whole life. I mean, you know, we all know Nikki Six had a, uh, a pretty tough upbringing and some challenging situations. Well, you know, Krabi's certainly got, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of hardship that he had to overcome, um, you know, in his life as well. Fans will know a little bit about that from, uh, the song Uncle Jack. Uh, which talks about his uh, his you know pedophile uncle, um, but yeah, it's it's quite an amazing story. So December, wow, we made it through the whole year, and, and here we are. This was the interview I just did. I got to talk with Robert Fleischman uh, about Vinnie Vincent Invasion. I'm a big Vinnie Vincent Invasion nut, and Robert dished out a lot of cool info. Now, when you think about equipment that you need for a podcast, you don't need a lot. And I'll tell you what I I use two phones. I do one that I talk, you know, one is the call and, and one records it. And basically I put it through a, a Bluetooth speaker and it has two different microphones. I, I put one up to the speaker and then I put one, strap it kind of onto my uh, chest as little clips. And then um, I edit the whole thing. I just edit, I do the whole thing now on my iPad. So if you have an iPad, you could definitely do a podcast. I have this um, program called Lexus Audio, and that's how I get rid of all the ums and all that kind of stuff. And then I mix it all together with the, the thumbnails and any visuals into iMovie. 
And it's funny because my son used to do all this stuff for me. I didn't really know how to do it. And now I've, I've, you know, hey, the old dog can learn new tricks. I actually learned something and I am able to put together my own podcast. The only thing I don't know how to do is to put it on Anchor. And if you put it on Anchor, that's how you get it on podcast platforms. So that's how you can get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that kind of stuff. So that's the only thing that he has to do for me. I put the rest of this thing all together myself. Uh, I write, you know, write it all, edit it all, upload it to YouTube. So hey, you know, come a long way since my my humble beginnings. Here's a clip with Robert. Now I got to ask you about this. One thing, obviously, that's very uh, also bombastic about Vinnie Vincent Invasion is the look of the guys in the band. And what always right. threw me off was the picture with you with those guys. So you've got these three guys. They have giant hair. They got makeup. They got all these crazy clothes and then here's you that looks just a little bit more normal than they do what was up with that photo shoot well the photo shoot when i looked at it afterwards it looked like i was uh posing with three inflatable dolls (laughs) three inflatable drag queens (laughs) (laughs) but uh but we were doing the session and oh the stylist for the um for the photo shoot, for some reason, he just goes, oh, let's cut his hair to me. And oh. at that time, before he cut my uh, got my hair cut, I'm not kidding, it was all one length to my shoulders. Really? Wow. And, yeah. And it was, and then all of a sudden I hear this zipping going on and it was like, you know, they gave me the fucking poodle haircut, you know? <laughs> and uh, I was just, I was livid. I, I didn't know what to think. So where's the 80s glam metal cast headed for 2021? I really don't know. I have done one interview that I haven't released yet, so that'll be coming out in the very beginning of 2021. But I think probably want to ease back on interviews a little bit. I'm kind of having fun doing creative stuff, like I did the Phantom, the Return of the Phantom, where I, I wrote a script idea for a uh, sequel for the Kiss movie, and I want to do some of the 80s glam metal beatdowns. We just did one with um, Ace versus Vinnie Vincent, and that's uh, that's did doing really well. So I'm not going to go away. Definitely going to evolve a bit and try some different things, and we'll see where it goes. So if you're listening on the podcast uh, platforms definitely go and subscribe to youtube because a lot of the stuff probably will only be on youtube uh because it just won't if it's a visual it's just not gonna uh go over well on the podcast platforms that's all i can say man hey thanks so much for listening thanks for sharing the podcast telling other people liking retweeting all the stuff that you do for it to get attention for all the sites like brave words sleaze rocks blabbermouth all of you guys thanks for all the sharing that you've done in the podcast it's definitely helped to get the word out uh, so i really appreciate it and uh there's only one way to end this man hope you have a great new year rock on